Hello, everybody. It's good to see you, City First. Let's take a moment. Let's put our hands together for everyone to join us online right now in Southwest Florida at Cape Coral, our God Behind Bars, Dixon and Hardy locations, everyone joining us on the Pando app, and especially all y'all here at the Spring Creek, as well as our state line location. And just excited for you to be here today. And we're continuing in a series that we're calling Iconic. And an icon is made in the likeness of a greater thing. And so I want to talk about this. And for those of you that are just joining us, I realize every single week, whether it be online or actually in person at one of our auditoriums, there's always somebody who's a guest. So let me just catch us all up to speed. All right. As we talk about an icon, this right here is an icon. Let me show it to you right here. This is an icon of what? The Statue of Liberty, right? Now, obviously, this is not the Statue of Liberty, it's a picture of the Statue of Liberty, or it's made in the likeness of the statue, and it represents what it is, something greater that's located actually in New York, right? And so when people see an icon, they don't focus on the icon, they give attention to what it represents. So we asked a question at the beginning of the series, what is the icon of Jesus? Like, what's the symbol of Jesus? Like, when you see that symbol, you think, oh, Jesus, what is it? Well, we found out that we are God's icon. Yes, you and me, Christ followers, are actually made in the likeness and are the symbol of Jesus. In other words, we represent him. In fact, it says in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the, and the word there, image in the Greek, which originally this verse was written in the Greek. It is icon, E-I-K-O-N. This is where we get the English word, I-C-O-N, icon, that we are made or conformed in the image or the icon of his son. So we've been talking about this during the iconic series, all right? We've been talking about how to have iconic relationships. Talked about that on Valentine's Day. Last week, Jen talked about how to have iconic forgiveness. And uh, today we're going to talk about something I think is very close to God's heart and how to be iconic in it. Uh, years ago, Jen and I had been invited to go out to the state of Oregon out west and to be able to preach and speak to a statewide pastors conference. So there were all these pastors gathering and we flew into Portland, all right, Portland, Oregon. And when we got off the plane and out of the airport, we began to see all these signs, much like this one right here. And the sign said, keep Portland weird, all right? And if you've ever been to Portland, the Portlanders, they, they're proud of the fact that their city is a little strange, all right? It's a little bit, a little different, you could say. Well, anyway, now there's all these other cities that have kind of joined the bandwagon, you could say, like Austin, Texas. If you go to Austin, there's signs that say, keep Austin weird. The state of Vermont has even taken this on. So, so this is what I think they're trying to say. They're trying to say that they don't want to just be normal because normal is a little boring, right? And it's just, it's, it's a little like cliche. And so there's something attractional about not just fitting in with everyone else. In other words, not going with the herd mentality. You know, if everybody's going over here, Portland and Austin and other places say, if they're going in this direction, we're going in this direction. So we want, in a sense, we don't want to conform. In fact, that's what I think they're saying, don't conform. Well, why do I bring this up? Because actually that idea of non-conformist or not conforming is actually a biblical idea. 
believe it or not. Now, I'm not saying that the Portlanders or, you know, the, the Austin, you know, individuals are doing it the way the Bible would say to do it, but, but the idea of being a nonconformist actually comes from Jesus. Jesus was a nonconformist. In fact, if you would interview the residents of the towns and the places where Jesus went and he did miracles and he taught, they would tell you that he was not normal that he was, he was very much a nonconformist. In fact, the Bible also says, like Jesus, that we are to not be normal. In other words, right here in the book of Romans, chapter 12, the apostle Paul writes this. Here's what I want you to do. God helping you. You can't do it on your own. Take your everyday, ordinary life, meaning your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering, which means every day we, we give God our life as worship, you could say, as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you could do for him. Now, this is the point I want you to, to remember. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. All right. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize he, what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Now, this word, unlike the culture, not like the culture, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. In other words, the insinuation here is that if you conform to cultural thinking and value systems, you're actually lowering your life to a level of immaturity. That's, that's pretty blunt, right? In fact, if you appropriately don't conform, and when I say appropriate is because I think there's sometimes inappropriate ways to not conform, but I'm saying if you appropriately biblically not conform, that the Bible says that's actually living a mature life. I love the way that Dr. Martin Luther King said it when he wrote the book Strength to Love. And he was talking about Christ followers and specifically about, you know, fighting for civil rights. And this is what he said. He said that we as Christ followers are to be transformed nonconformists. I love that term. Transformed by God but nonconformists in our lifestyles. In other words, as Christ followers, we're to maybe keep it weird. <laughs> but you know what? I'll be honest with you. I don't like the word weird. I don't like the word weird. And here's the reason why. Because I've met some weird Christians before. And, and so have you, right? And truthfully, if that's weird, I'm not sure that's what we're supposed to be aiming for. Does that make sense? Because Weird can be a compliment, but weird can also mean bizarre or strange or creepy <laughs> or even repulsive, all right? And these are not words that ever describe the person of Jesus. So I don't know if I like weird. Maybe there's another word. Well, let's look at what First Peter says. And, and, you know, he writes down this, and I'm going to read it out of kind of like an older translation of the Bible. It's called the King James. And so it has some old English language. But it says this, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now listen, a peculiar people. He uses the word peculiar 
Now, now I don't use the word peculiar a lot, and probably you don't either. So what would be a modern day term for a peculiar people? Well, how about this? Different. Hmm. Different. Instead of, instead of being peculiar, maybe we use the word different. Different means that, that you're distinctive, you're unique, you're uncommon, you're unusual, right? And then there's this other word in that verse that Peter is using to not just say peculiar or different, but he also calls us as Christ followers collectively. He says this, you're a holy nation. Holy. Okay. Now, now holy. Some of you, you, you don't use the word holy unless you slam your finger in the door and it's followed by another word, right? Holy. Holy seems like it could be a churchy word. But it's not a churchy word. It's a God word. It's a God word because this is the thing. Sometimes we talk so much about God's love and his grace and his compassion, which we should, by the way. But sometimes we forget that he's also supremely holy. See, listen, as strong as his love is his holiness. So if he has strong love, equally String, strong holiness. And when I say holy, I think some of you, I, I take you back to maybe the church you grew up in or, or maybe the parochial school that you attended, the private school. And, and you know what? The definition of holy that you were taught were, were skirts down to here and no tattoos. You look a little Amish and, and, and you know, you just don't have fun. That's holy. But you know, some of you are like going, I don't know if I want that holy because I don't want to drive a buggy. You know what I'm saying? I want, I want, I want to do something more. Well, listen, that really isn't the definition of holy. Let me give you the biblical definition of holy. Holy means two words, set apart. That's what it means. Or in other words, different. The English word for holy, is it's derived from an Anglo-Saxon term. It is halig, H-A-L-I-G. It means this. It means well whole. Well as in health, spiritual health and whole as in W-H-O-L-E. In other words, holiness is wholeness, which means completeness. So if you're living a holy life, you're set apart, which means that there's a wholeness with a W, a completeness about you, that you're spiritually healthy. You're whole and spiritually healthy. And if you are that way in today's culture, you are going to be different. Because... I'll be honest with you, it seems like everything right now is fractured and broken. And so if you're complete and you're whole, you're going to stand out when your relationships are whole and healthy. Your mind is whole and healthy. Your life is whole and healthy. Trust me, you're going to be different. Holiness does not mean that everything is easy or perfect. Not at all. It means that you're living in such a way that you are separated from, standing out from the brokenness, the compromise, and the sin that is all around you in culture. It doesn't mean you don't have brokenness, but it's not your identity. Because you know what? Your identity is now Jesus, that he has redeemed you, that he has restored you, that he has saved you. And oh yeah, you have scars and you bear stripes and there are wounds, but guess what? That there is a healing God that is healing you from the inside out. You see, you live differently. You have hope when everything else around you is hopeless. You have joy when everything else is joyless. 
And so you're living different. It means that you live also with boundaries. Your choices have boundaries. It's kind of like I want you to picture you're driving up like a mountain road. It's like curvy. And, and you know what? There's like a cliff and it, you know, there's a fall of thousands of feet if you drive off the road. And so what do they do? They put guardrails. And, and you know, guardrails are there actually for your safety. And so many people look at holiness or they look at boundaries and they think to themselves, what a killjoy. Our God just wants to restrict me. You know, he doesn't want me to live the way I want to live. No, no, no. He doesn't want you to drive off the cliff. Does that make sense? That, that no one looks at a, a boundary. No one looks at a guardrail and goes, how restrictive and legalistic it is for them to keep me on the road. But rather instead, that you're living with boundaries if you live a life that's set apart. You're not just doing what you feel. It means living by a separate code of conduct because it's the healthiest way to live. And I'm talking spiritual health here. See, see, Jesus tells us that we should live our lives in such a way that we don't fit in to culture, that we should be different. That our, that, our, that our marriages should be different, that our work ethics should be different, that our convictions should be different, that we should be set apart, that we should be holy. Remember that, that scripture I just got done reading in Romans. Don't become so well-adjusted. Think about those words, well-adjusted to your culture, that you fit into it without thinking. In other words, you, you, don't, even, you don't even realize it. You see, here's, here's what that, that verse tells me, that if you're not trying to seek a life of being set apart, that the default is you just fit in without thinking. It's like a tractor beam. It just kind of sucks you in. You, you don't realize it, but our actions, our convictions, and our love should, should stick out. And this is the way that the first century church lived. Like, I mean, I'm talking the people that hung with Jesus, and then when he ascended to heaven, they continued like serving him, and they started what we now call the church. This is the way they lived. They lived in a very pagan era where, where the Roman Empire, trust me, we think sometimes our culture is bad. Hey, I'll tell you what, there were crazy things happening in the Roman Empire. And they stood out. In fact, there was a pastor um, by the name of Tim Keller, and, and he's retired now. He, he pastored for a long time in Manhattan. And uh, he wrote this, and I love this. This is what he wrote about the first century church. He said the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christian came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. They stood out, they were different even in just that area. In fact, uh, one of Jesus' most famous sermons, if not his most famous sermon, is called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, even if you're new to church or new to faith, I guarantee you've heard part of his sermon before. Because even though you maybe don't know the term Sermon on the Mount, what it really means is that he gave a sermon literally on a mount, like it was kind of a hilly area. And so they called it the Sermon on the Mount. It lasted, most theologians believe, lasted multiple days. Like literally, he would preach all day, everybody would go home and sleep, come back the next day, he would preach all day again, like it went for like multiple days. So, you know, in the spirit of, of being like Jesus today, 
You know, instead of taking 35 minutes, I'm going to just take all afternoon. So buckle in. You know, I'm just, I got some things to say. No, I'm just kidding. Some of you are like going, no. What did Jesus say during this famous sermon? Things you heard of before, even if you're not maybe a person that you would deem yourself religious. You've heard these things. In fact, what did he preach? He preached things like this. Rejoice in the middle of suffering and persecution. Rejoice. Forgive others who hurt you and betray you. Um, turn the other cheek. You ever heard that? See, see, people aren't even part of church. They're like, oh yeah, that whole turn the other cheek. That's Jesus. The, the, turn the other cheek is a Jesus thing. You know, uh, you know, give away your possessions if somebody asks for it. If somebody asks for your cloak, give it to them, he said. Go the extra mile. You ever heard of that one? That saying, that came from this sermon. Talked about going the extra mile. Being salt and light, that was in the Sermon on the Mount. Or, you know, he was talking to guys, and he said this, if you're married, guys, if you lust after another woman that you've committed adultery in your heart, probably got real quiet on the mount that day when he said that. <laughs> Love your enemies. Love your enemies. You ever heard that one? Or do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't retaliate. Give to those that are in need. Don't, don't lay up treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven, he said. And build your life on a solid foundation of God's truth, not cultural values. These are all things that were a part of this multi-day message. You know, I'm going to sum it all up. Some of you have never even heard the sermon out before, so I'm going to tell you the Cliff Notes version. You ready? Here it is. Two words. Live differently. That's what it is. That's what he said. Live different. Instead of hating your, your, your enemy, love them. That's different, right? And, and you know what? If you do these things, Jesus said, you're going to be whole and you're going to be healthy as an individual from the inside out. And, and when I read the stories of Jesus, I'm convinced that thousands of people followed him back in the day, not because he was just full of love and compassion, although he was, but also, also they were attracted to him because he was different, and he challenged us to live different. And he said, there's a higher way of living than what you're seeing in your culture. And they were attracted to him. In fact, you know, his strong message was this. I love you, change, live different. That's what he said. And the problem is with Christians nowadays in America is we want to embrace the Jesus that says, I love you. But we don't want to embrace the Jesus that commands us to change and live different. You see, we want to embrace the Jesus who says, I love you and I accept you, which he does. But then he calls us to a different type of life. He calls us to change, not to customize our pre-existing life into him, but rather he takes and he says, I'm giving you a new life. That the old life is to be put on a cross every day. The Bible says, Jesus said, crucify yourself daily. What does that mean? Die to your old self. See, we ignore that part, right? And Jesus even, you know, gets kind of blunt about this. In fact, uh, God says this, and, and again, this is in 1 Peter. And you got to remember, Peter is the guy who we talk about a lot. He's probably the most famous disciple. And he is probably one of the closest disciples. Like, like, if I were to look at you and say, I was talking to Martin Luther King Jr.'s best friend, or I was talking to Mother Teresa's best friend, and this is what they said, he said, she said, okay? You would probably listen, right? Well, Peter was 
super close to Jesus. In fact, when Jesus, right before he ascended to heaven, he looked at Peter and he goes, it's your job to start what we now call the church. So there's trust, there's closeness. What does Peter say about Jesus's words? He says this, don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, just doing what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then, meaning before you met Jesus. Now you do. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy, you be holy. You call out to God for help and he helps. He's a good father that way. But don't forget, he's also a responsible father and won't let you get by with sloppy living. Ouch, right? Turn the person next to you right now and say, ouch. I know today I'm stepping on your toes a little bit, but don't shoot the messenger, all right? Because God says, I'm holy and you must be holy. But why? Just so that we live by some moral code? Is he a cosmic killjoy? Doesn't want us to have fun? No. We create boundaries because he doesn't want us to drive our lives off the cliff because we will incur damage if we make certain decisions, sometimes lifelong damage. And some of us understand that. I understand that. I created choices before I came to Jesus. And even after I came to Jesus, you know what? I still deal with the consequences of those things. Remember, holiness means well, whole. That's his goal for us. As an earthly father, I want my kids to be well and whole. I want them to have a life that is complete, not one that is, they're, they're, they're just, you know, struggling their way through life, limping their way through life. No, listen, this is the thing. I want my kids to have a life that creates true joy and happiness. If you violate holiness, you'll eventually violate your happiness. And here's the reason why the Bible says sin is fun for a season. It's fun at first. It's fun. But then after a while, it steals your joy. And it gives you a life that's full of misery. Two weeks ago, I was meeting a pastor of a sister church of ours here. Um, and I was meeting with him in Henderson, Nevada. Henderson is a suburb of, of Las Vegas. And, and I was out there for about two and a half days of meetings. And, and um, when I flew into Vegas at the airport there, I got off the plane and I noticed that there was this huge uh, advertisement. It was like a billboard outside of the airport. And, and it was for a casino. And this is what it read. It read, just the right amount of wrong. Just the right amount of wrong. So if you go to this casino, it's just the right amount of wrong. And, and you know, like most people, when they go to a casino, it's just the right amount of broke. That's, that's really what, but, but anyway, it's the right amount of wrong. And I, I saw that, and, and you know what? I thought to myself, I thought, that's our human problem right there. And, and let me just speak to the church for a moment, to those that are like Christ followers, okay? That's also our problem. We want just the right amount of fitting in. Just the right amount. Not enough to really make it cost us. But just the right amount of, of fitting in. But then we allow just the right amount of wrong in too. And then that way it's kind of like we're not necessarily, you know, having to be uncomfortable. And we all do this. I mean, all of us, 100% of us, even the person on the mic. We all sometimes just want the right amount of wrong. Because if we're truly going to live set apart, we know that... That's going to cost us. It means we have to leave some things behind, the old life, right? 
You know, there's three truths that I know. Living a life that is set apart does not mean that God will love you more. It helps you love God more. That's huge. See, some of you, some of you are taught, if I'm holy, God will love me more. No, that's not true. Uh, you know what? If you live differently, God doesn't love you an ounce more than what he loves you right now. You hear that? So this has nothing to do with God's love. But I will say this. If you set yourself apart and you do your best to say, God, I want to live a holy life, guess what? You're going to love God more. Second thing is this, is that when you're fitting into this world, it's difficult to fit God into your world. Because the Bible says, what does light have in common with darkness? Like they can't coexist. And so if you're not, you know, setting yourself apart, then it's real hard to allow God to fit into that space in your heart. And third thing I know is this, is when you create boundaries, your life becomes whole and it invites God's joy and happiness and blessing and purpose into your life. So if you want a life that is graced with God's joy and blessing and happiness and purpose, then, then guess what? The more you live the way he wants you to live, the more that those things become real to you. But here's the, here's the million dollar question that I want to end with today. The million dollar question is, how do we do this? How do we really set ourselves apart? Because there is this strong gravitational pull of this world that wants to suck us into its value system, its actions, its mindset, right? I mean, every day, it just pulls us in. So, so how do you do that? Like, how do you really live a life that's different and a little weird? Well, here's what I think. Don't pursue perfection, pursue presence. What do I mean by that? Now, if you don't remember anything else I said today, just remember that. Don't pursue perfection, pursue presence. What do I mean? God is not just wanting you to live some religious moral code. If you do that, you're gonna be super fatigued. You're gonna get tired, you're gonna give it about a week or two, and you're gonna say, I can't do this anymore. If you are just trying to figure out how to just live by this moral code, instead, what you need to do is pursue the presence of God and say, I wanna invite Jesus into my life. I want to find his presence. I, I want desperately to just have the presence of God because this is what I know, that the presence of God will change you. Jen said this last week in her message. I thought it was really profound. She said, stop relying on you to change you because if you could have changed you, you would have changed you. So it's not in your own efforts. It's not in your own works. In fact, the Bible even talks against works is we don't qualify ourselves through works. It does take our right choices, but listen, self-reliance is not gonna get you the results you want. You know what you gotta do? You gotta rely on the Holy Spirit to give you the ability to change and to be different from the world around you and the old you. In fact, you know, there's a verse that talks about this, that, that you know what, Jesus was, was sending a helper says in John 14, Jesus is quoted here. He says, the Father is sending, sending a great helper. You know, that's the other word for the Holy Spirit. His name is also helper. The Holy Spirit, in my name, Jesus said, to teach you everything and to remind you of all 
I have said to you. In other words, you cannot become holy without the help of the Holy Spirit. Do you hear that? You see, he'll help you figure it out. He'll give you the strength to make the right choices. And as you seek the presence of Jesus in your life, God's Spirit is gonna help you make the right choices. When I became the pastor here at City First back in 2007, part of my job or responsibility was to oversee six retirement centers in Northern Illinois. It was part of my job. And I remember one day, I went to one of our retirement centers and I was in like a commons area and a bunch of the residents were in there and, and I would try to visit the retirement centers every once in a while. And when I walked in there, there was this couple um, that were probably in their mid eighties. I don't even know their names. All right. But there were residents there and they were in their mid eighties, most likely. And, and I was watching them and you know, it's kind of interesting. I, they were married for over 60 years. Okay. And, and this is what's so funny. They actually kind of looked like each other. Like, like, you know, you're hanging out that long. You kind of look like each other, right? I mean, they had kind of the same style of clothes and, and it was funny when I went to go talk to them, they kind of talked like each other and they had the same kind of mannerisms with their hands, things like that. And as I was watching them, one of the retirement center staff leaned over to me and said, uh, this is what happens when you hang out together for decades. This is what happens when you hang out together for decades, you begin to look like each other. And I started thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? At the end of the day, if you hang out with somebody and you begin to take on their mannerisms and their mindsets and their value systems and their worldview, then shouldn't we, to be set apart, make it just our number one goal to hang out with Jesus? Because if we hang out with Jesus, we're not just striving to live at some moral code, but rather instead, all of a sudden, the longer we hang out with Jesus, the more we take on his value systems, his actions, his worldview, and his mindset. We begin to look like him. So maybe holiness is the habit of hanging out with Jesus. There it is. Say, I wanna be holy. Good, then just hang out with Jesus. Spend time in his word. Spend time praying every day. Invite the Holy Spirit to go with you and for you to go with the Holy Spirit throughout your day. Think about this. As you're driving into work or school, as you're hanging out at home, if you're a stay-at-home parent, whatever it is that you do, just say in a prayer, God, I invite your presence into my life. May I live the way you want me to live. May I do what you want me to do. May I see what you want me to see. And this is what I know. The longer that you hang out with Jesus, the more you're gonna look like him and it is going to be different in all of the right ways. A peculiar people, a holy nation set apart for a special purpose. So can we go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes? And I'd like to close. Heavenly Father, I pray for my friends right now. And God, I can't help but think there's some people that are watching in person, online, wherever, and they're thinking to themselves, I need to invite the presence of Jesus in my life. Maybe they've never done it before. Or maybe it's been a really, really long time ago. Lord, I pray that they would make you the leader and the forgiver of their lives. Lord, they could pray a prayer just like this. 
Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of all my sin. I invite your presence into my life. I wanna live for you in Jesus' name. Lord, if they pray that, Lord, you are so ready. You are so anxious to be close. And Lord, for the rest of us, that maybe we've made that decision before, I, I just pray right now that God, this would be a great reminder that even today we would be set apart, that we would be living differently, that in the right way we would keep it weird, that Lord, we wouldn't fit into our culture, but that Lord, we would live different. And Lord, I, I just ask that, that you would come close to each and every one of us. And the more that we hang out with you, or the more that we would look like you. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Come on, let's give God praise. Can we do that?